Come on. Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 1. Okay, 1 Peter, chapter number 1. So that introduction, most of it was not true. I'm going to let you decide which parts were, was not true. Okay? So he said, handsome, intelligent, preacher, God's word. At least one of those is true. Okay? I, I'm not sure about the others. So we're in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse number 1. I want to thank Pastor, um, I don't know if this is being live-streamed, if he's going to see this later. I want to thank you for the opportunity to preach. I want to thank you all for being here. I know it's, it's always strange seeing someone for the first time and not knowing them, because you don't know me, I don't know you, but I'm really glad that I have this opportunity today to share what God has laid on my heart, and even earlier when the service was starting and the worship leader was talking about suffering and even quoted some verses from 1 Peter, it's cool how God has, although I'm new to you and you're new to me, he has design and purpose for this message for be, to be for this day. And I really think, church, that there's something God has for us where if we listen, we're going to be helped this morning. And really that's my goal is, for everyone who's listening, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be helped, and hopefully from God's word, we could take something away that will do that for us, okay? First Peter chapter 1, okay, and we're going to start in verse number 1. The Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here's our key verse. We're going to work down to verse 9. But we're going to stop in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, here's our key phrase, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you. Okay, the title of today's message is Hope in a Hopeless World. Hope in a Hopeless World. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, so much for this opportunity to preach. Lord, thank you, God, for what you have prepared for the people in this room. Thank you, Father, that as we gather around your word, Lord, I know that today it gets to be me that preaches, but ultimately, Father, I'm asking that it's you that speaks. Lord, uh, there's a lot here that I have prepared for them, a lot of things I want to cover. But I pray, God, that you would leave out anything that doesn't need, doesn't need to be said, and that everything that is said this morning is just what they need to hear to help them, to encourage them, and to grow them in your word. Thank you, God, for this opportunity. And I pray, God, as we consider the hope that you provide for us, we will learn, Lord, more about your gospel. Thank you, God, that this hope isn't something we have to work towards. And I pray, God, that today we would learn what it is that you've given us in, in yourself and in your son, and that we would decide today to live in this living hope. Lord, thank you, God, that we have this hope. Be with me as I preach, Lord. Be with us as we learn from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want everyone to imagine, okay, you're going to imagine with me, that everyone in this room, you are all nine years old. Every single one of you. Is there all the kids left? So I'm assuming no one's nine, right? No one's nine? Okay, the youngest in this room probably is, is a freshman. 
one of my freshmen is here. Ethan, sorry to put you on the spot. I, uh, I, I forgot to actually give a little background, so I'll give you a quick background. I'm the freshman history teacher at Berean, so really cool seeing one of my students. So imagine, though, you are all what age? Nine. But that's going to change tomorrow, because tomorrow you are turning ten. It's a really special day. Tomorrow is your birthday. So I want you, as you're imagining, what are you feeling? You're probably going to bed with some excitement, some joy, because tomorrow's the day, right? Double digits. The next time you get to add another digit is triple digit, and that's not going to be for a while. So <laughs> double digits, you're nine years old, you're excited, hope is full, filling up. Think of all the emotions that's swelling, okay? So now you go to bed with those emotions. You wake up the next day. Super excited, you run down the hall to your mom. You're probably thinking of these questions. I wonder what cake I'm getting. I wonder what friends are coming to my party. The most important question. I wonder what I'm getting, right? What gifts am I getting? But imagine this, okay? So with all those emotions that you just built up, you go to your mom, and she has this look on her face that makes you worried. Because she's not smiling, she's not happy. It's like she's about to break some bad news. And she tells you, I'm sorry, something came up and we have to postpone your birthday. Imagine being a nine-year-old hearing that. Where, sorry son, sorry daughter, I know you really wanted to celebrate, but can we just do it tomorrow? And because you all were probably perfect children at nine, you said, okay, mom, I guess. So you go to bed that night. Now, what, what are you feeling? You're probably feeling less excited. You're feeling disappointment. It's maybe some discouragement. Is the hope still there? Yes, it is, because your birthday is tomorrow. Okay, well, you're going to celebrate tomorrow, but you're a little less excited. So you go to bed with the same feeling, but what if you wake up the next morning and she says it again? And then the next day, and she says, son, I'm sorry, it's just been so busy, we'll probably have to celebrate next month. Could you feel all the emotions just, just welled up? Do you feel, it's almost like a balloon just deflating. Do you feel it? Right, let me give you another illustration that maybe you could relate to uh, more than that one. Raise your hand if you've ever ordered an Amazon package. Okay, almost everybody, right? Like we, we don't even go to the store anymore. We just order from Amazon. When you order from Amazon, Especially if it's something you really want, what are you doing? You're on your phone waiting for it to come, right? And now you can actually track where the driver is. But, but I actually, okay, church, I used to deliver for Amazon. My, my last year of my master's degree, that's something that helped me pay off college. When I delivered, I found out that not every package actually gets delivered. Sometimes, and you know that, right? Have you ordered something and it hasn't come? And then you're checking your phone and it says, okay, arriving by 9 p.m. You're looking at your watch, it's, it's 8.30. And you're like, okay, wow, they're cutting it really close. 8.50, 8.55, and you're thinking, I, I must be the last stop. But from 8.59 to 9, the notification changes. And now it says, delivery delayed, expected tomorrow. What does that do to you? No one likes that feeling. Right? That, that feeling that I just put you through. No one enjoys having something you're expected to be delayed. Something you're hoping for to be postponed. 
In fact, Proverbs says it this way, hope deferred, the word deferred means to be pushed off, to be delayed, to be, okay, t- next day, tomorrow, next month, when our hope is deferred, it makes our heart sick. Have you ever felt that? Maybe in a context that's less funny than a birthday or more serious than an Amazon package? Have you ever waited for something that you really needed God to do? Something that you've been praying for where you were waiting, anticipating, and it felt like the answer was never coming. It felt like your hope in God continually kept being pushed off and off and off. And what does that make you feel? It's probably what the proverb says, it makes our heart sick. You know, in the Bible, there's a couple words for hope. In the Old Testament, the word is kavah. The Hebrew word kavah comes from the root is kav, which is cord. And here's the picture. It's a cord being pulled and pulled and pulled, and the tension is getting stronger and stronger. Do you feel that tension until the tension snaps, and the breaking or the releasing of the tension is the kavah? It's what I'm waiting for. The tension is finally released. Okay, in Isaiah, they use the word kavah to describe a farmer who plants the seeds and kavahs for the harvest. But the question is, what if that tension never breaks and we're in this perpetual state of waiting? What happens then? What happens if the thing we are constantly waiting on never comes to pass? A prayer we're waiting on. A loved one who's sick that we need God to heal a circumstance that we need God to change. We all in this room, from, even, from the youngest to the oldest, from the most severe case to the l- least severe case, there, there are examples all throughout this room of hope being deferred. What do we do then? Well, here in First Peter, and this is what I'm going to be preaching on today, there's actually another type of hope that the gospel provides us. And I love the word that Peter uses to describe this hope in verse 3. Did anyone catch it? What kind of hope is it? It is a living hope. And in in the New Testament, we're given another word for hope, and it is the word elpis. And in elpis, it's not a hope based on circumstance. It is a living, lively, vibrant hope that places itself not on the changing of a circumstance, but on a person. Our hope today as believers are not on God answering your prayer. It's not on things getting better. It's not on circumstances changing. We are given a hope because of the gospel, a hope that is found in a person. And today what I want to encourage you with is how does that change things? Okay, how does that change things when I'm waiting on God and I need him to answer my prayer, when I'm in a difficult circumstance and I need things to change? How does it change things that our hope is in a person? Okay, recently, it almost seems forever ago now, but it's pretty recent. Remember what happened in 2019? COVID? That was actually when I first started teaching. Crazy enough, that's when I first started teaching. I was a middle school teacher when, when COVID happened, and I remember the administrator saying that, we don't know how long this is going to last. You'll, you'll probably go home, and we'll be back in person in two weeks. And after two weeks, you know what they said? We, w- let's wait out another two weeks. And after two weeks, another two weeks past four weeks, they said, it's looking like it's the rest of the year. 
When the rest of the year ended, they said, well, don't worry, we'll be back in fall. We spent that next year almost completely online. Something that I was hoping for didn't come when I thought it would come. So how does hoping in God help you and help I when we find ourselves in those circumstances? So today, what I want to do is I want, if you're taking notes, three questions that First Peter answers about a living hope. Okay, three questions that's going to help us know how to live in that living hope. Okay, question number one, if you're taking notes, why do we need a living hope? Okay, number one, why do we need a living hope? Notice verse one, the recipient of this letter, Peter is writing, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There we see the audience, the recipients of his letter. These are believers who have been scattered Believers who had to pack up and leave their home abruptly because of what? Because of the difficulty of the context that they are currently living in during that time. First Peter, written around 64 AD, we're in the heart of the Roman Empire. And at this time, Rome had just introduced one of its most cruel emperors, Emperor Nero. So in this letter, who is he writing to? He is writing to believers who had to scatter who had to leave, who had to go all, to all these different countries. Why? Because of the persecution that they were facing. Look at verse number six. In verse six, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials, difficulties. This is the context that, that the people are in who are reading First Peter. So what Peter is not doing is he doesn't dismiss their difficulties. He doesn't say, oh, you crybaby Christians, just trust in God more. Can't you just persevere? He is acknowledging that what they are going through is pretty severe. It's pretty serious. Being scattered, being spread. Imagine you right now. It's easy to read that. But what if that happened to you? What if a persecution was so great in America that we all had to pack our bags and leave and go to other countries? This is the context of the, of the people reading the letter of 1 Peter. And yet as they are reading and as Peter is acknowledging their state, Peter tells them, even in this context, we are given a living hope. We have something we can hope in. Is it in the changing of circumstances? Is it in things getting better? No, and we're going to talk about that in the next point. It is in something that is greater. But today, in this first point, I just want to address, why is this important? Why is hoping something in something even significant? Can't we just push through the difficulty? Okay, a, a quote I like from Tim Keller, he said, you cannot go through life without suffering, and you cannot go through suffering without hope. If you don't have a hope, if you don't have something that you ground yourself in, going through suffering is going to be really difficult. And no one in this room, nobody, from the youngest to the oldest, is exempt from going through suffering. We will all go through that. If, you, if you're breathing air, if you're living a life, you in this lifetime will go through suffering. And when that suffering happens, we need, you, you absolutely need something to ground yourself in. 
Okay, in, in a book, there is a historian. Um, let me look up his name really quick. De Blanco, okay, where he's writing about the trend of American civilization, and he, he talks about the integral part that hope plays in any civilization. He says that without hope, where all of our getting and all of our spending is just us wasting time fidgeting, waiting for our life to end. You realize we, we need something to expect. There has to be something that we're looking forward to. Okay, this, this whole idea of waiting or expecting something that goes beyond this life, this field of psychotherapy okay, was founded by, and you might know his name, a Jewish psychoanalyst named Viktor Frankl. This idea that our, our meaning for life the thing that grounds us is our greatest motivator for living. And if we don't have something that gives our life meaning, we don't have motivation to live. So let me describe some of the things he wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Okay, Viktor Frankl, this Jewish psychoanalyst who found himself in a concentration camp during World War II, and in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he described the people who were there and how they dealt with the difficulties of being in a concentration camp. He said there are four groups of people. Number one, there were those who completely lost all hope. And these people, they, they gave up. They stopped eating. They stopped wanting to wake up. They just completely gave up on life. And because they felt like there was never a change in their circumstance, they just gave up. He talks about his warden who believed out of a vision of God that God would end the war on March 30th. And when the day crept closer and it looked like the war wasn't going to change, he realized that there was nothing to hope in. And he wrote how his warden on March 29th got really sick. March 30th got really, really sick. And on March 31st, he died. He described how the loss of hope opened up his warden's immune system to all the diseases that was there at the camp. Okay, group one, they just lost all hope. Group two, he describes how there were people who completely morphed in their character. How there were people who were the nicest of individuals, but because of their circumstance, they became brutal. They became, they, they became aggressive. How their circumstances changed them. Okay, group number three, he describes how there were people who were hoping that when this thing all ended, everything was going to go back to normal. Their family would be restored, their finances restored, their position in society, their status and their occupation would all be restored. But he wrote that even after the war, these people who were hoping on normalcy plunged into depression because when the difficulties ended, they realized things were still not normal. What do all three have in common? And I think that third one, maybe we relate to the most, right? Maybe God did change the circumstance, but things aren't normal. Have there ever been an event in your life so devastating, so tragic that there is no normal, right? Where everything after this point is completely different. So what are you hoping in? All three groups were hoping in some kind of circumstance, some kind of return to normalcy. Okay, here's group four. Dr. Frankel said that there was a group where their hope defied the circumstance. 
In spite of what they were going through, there was something that they were hoping in that went beyond the temporary, and it was in the concentration camp. It, it almost tore open everyone's soul and revealed what level of hope each individual had. And some of this group, this fourth group, they're hoping in something almost as if someone was watching them from heaven, a loved one or, or God, and it was this hope that got them through the camp. It's a greater level of hope, a hope that's not grounded in here, but grounded up there, a hope that is not temporary, a hope that is not dulled by circumstances changing, but a hope that in spite of the circumstances is still vibrant is still living. That is what First Peter is describing, a living hope, unaffected by what you are going through, a hope that still helps us in spite of the circumstances changing or not. That is what everyone needs. And difficulties, here's what it does, church, it tears us all open and reveals whether or not we have that type of hope. So do we? And the awesome truth in point two is, if you're a believer, the answer is yes. Okay, but I'll get that to that in a second. But what I'm just trying to illustrate right now is, having that hope is important. You cannot go through life without hope. Okay, one last illustration. Who here, who here you're young enough to where you're just applying for your first job? Do you have any teenagers like that? Nobody? You're just applying for your first job? Okay, let's say... Say Mr. Harris was, actually, no, that, that's weird. I won't do that. I, I'm going to say it's weird. Okay. Let's say I, I am applying, okay, for a job, and I have this job that is really difficult. My employer is really, really mean. Okay, that's not the case right now. Okay, I have a, a great employer. But let's say the job is, could you think of what would be the, the worst job possible? Okay, all the kids, all the teenagers, use your heads, because I know we, the younger you are, the more imagination you have. So imagine, what, what would be the, the grossest? Like, I wouldn't want to do that. I, what is it? IRS. IRS, okay. <laughs> I, I was thinking cleaning the sewers with a toothbrush. Your toothbrush, okay. <laughs> imagine you and your best friend. You're young, okay? Remember, we said you're, you're, you just turned 10, so, okay? You and your best friend both get this job. It's disgusting. It's hard. Here are the hours, 80 hours a week. Double a full-time job. But you both go into the job, and you find out, okay, you, your employer tells you at the end of this year, you're going to get paid a whopping $30,000. That's a lot of money, right? $30,000. That's for, for the kids in here, that's probably $30,000 more than you have right now. So that's a lot of money. But why aren't you excited? Because you're not doing that for $30,000, right? No one's getting excited cleaning sewers for $30,000, 80-hour work weeks. But what if your best friend was told that he, at the end of the year, would receive $30 million? See, did the circumstance change? No, it didn't, right? Circumstance is the same. Same sewer, same job, different expectations. We have different things we're hoping in. He's going to, if that was me, I'm going to work with a smile on my face, even though I'll hate it. Why? Because at the end of this year, I will never have to work again. 
Because 30 million, I, I mean, I'll, I'll clean all the sewers, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I live in Vallejo, I'll clean all of Vallejo's sewers, right? Why? The circumstances didn't change, but what you were hoping in did. Hope makes all the difference. That's why we need it. But number two, here's a question, where do we find it? Where do we find living hope? If it's not in the circumstance, where are we supposed to find it? And here's what's beautiful about living hope. Verse 3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an exclamation point. And I, I like whenever there's an exclamation point in the Bible, just reading in my head with that. It's almost like Peter's declaring this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited to say something. Here it is. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's the amazing thing about this hope. If you are a believer, then that phrase, being born again, is true of you. And living hope is not something you have to muster up. It's not something you have to earn. Living hope isn't, oh God, where do I get it? You have it. Living hope is a birthright given to you as a believer, as someone who is born in Jesus Christ, who is born again. Let's look at a few verses in 1 Peter Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Okay, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, with, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Where do we find this living hope? This thing that is going to get us through life, how do we get it? We all need it. We should all want it. The good news is you have it. It is something given to us because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus Christ has done here in 1 Peter 1, talking about how no one in here, if you are a believer and you're born again, you did not do it through a perishable means. You, you didn't do it because you paid your way, because you earned your way. You, you are a believer all 100% because of what Jesus has done. That's what it means to be born again. Think of that idea of being born again. Right? When I think of the phrase born again, my mind jumps to John chapter 3. Right? Who was Jesus talking to in John 3? Nicodemus, the Sanhedrin, this man of great religious stature, of position, this man who, who knew the Bible, the Old Testament really well, and Jesus going to him, okay, he, at least unlike his, his counterparts, was open to talk to Jesus, and he goes to Jesus, and he, he asks Jesus, and Jesus tells him, okay, what do you need to do? You have to be born again. Think of how humbling that is. Somebody with all the religiosity, okay, he, he obeys the law, he knows the law, and yet Jesus tells him, even you have to start over. Even what you have is not enough. What does it mean to be born again? In John 16, we're given another picture of Jesus describing a woman giving birth, and she's in sorrow, she's in travail, and she, and, and this might not make sense to us today, because we have hospitals, but back then, giving birth was a real danger. It, it was really likely that you could give birth, and the, the wife, the mom, could die. 
So a woman giving birth was doing it at the risk of her life. And when that baby is born, that baby being born is through all of the labor and pain done by the mother. It was nothing that the child did. The child didn't birth itself. It was the labor, the pain of the mother through her risking her life, we have this baby. Jesus Christ compares himself and he describes that the hour, uses this word hour to describe the woman giving birth. Whenever we see the hour, it's a reference to his death. And he's saying that he, just like this woman, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, died so that you could be born again. That's the gospel. It's not what we bring to the table that saves us. It's what he brings. It's not, God, look at all the righteous things I do. So, so now because I'm righteous, you do for me. No, it's we all in this room were sinners, but because of the grace of God, because of God sending his son to die on a cross for us, through that, through the forgiveness of our sins, through his death, burial and resurrection, the conquering of sin and death, we now all are given an opportunity to have a relationship with God. That is the gospel. And through this relationship, this unearned, unmerited, 100% grace-given relationship, we find access to a living hope. See, we, we describe the context of the believers in 1 Peter as one being, they're, they're scattered, they're going through difficult times, but there's another context they're in. These are post-resurrection believers. These are believers who just 30 years prior experienced and heard and learned of Jesus dying, being buried and rising again, and now they're living in the reality of that. And because of the reality of what Jesus has done, Peter is saying, you now have a new type of hope. We in this room, because of what Jesus has done, you have a new type of hope. One that you did not muster on your own strength. One that you did not earn. One that you did not create. A hope that is present because of the gospel. Keep reading in verse 4. Verse 3, sorry, it says, born again to a living hope through, okay, what is it backed by? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, through the resurrection, he's saying that our hope is as sure as that is sure. As sure as we know that Jesus is alive, that is how confident we could be in this hope. Think of, think of Peter writing that back then, what that meant. Okay, today, it, it, I guess it would be easy to try to say Jesus didn't rise again or try to deny that truth. But for Peter to write that decades within Jesus actually dying and rising again, I mean, there, there are living eyewitnesses, church. There are people who were alive during the time he died and rose again. And now Peter writing this letter, if that was not true, do you realize how, how much easier it would have been to refute that back then? Right? It's, like, it's like me saying the White House isn't real. It's, it's a myth, right? You would think I'm dumb, and, and you would pull up pictures, or, or you could even bring me to Washington, D.C. and say, look, it's right there. Why? Because we're living during a time where it's literally right there. 
For Peter to say that Jesus rose again from the dead so soon after it happened, he is confirming that this is a real fact. And he, here's what he's saying. It is on that resurrection we base our hope. Church, that's where you find it. Through what Jesus has done for us, through his mercy, through our relationship with God, backed by the fact that he's not dead, but he's alive, we have a living hope. You're not hoping, when we say we're hoping in Jesus, you're not hoping in something that is dead, that is dull. You're hoping in something that is alive. The, the, the pinnacle of all the world history accumulating to the cross, that is where we find the hope. That's why I was looking at this this morning. I love at the center of that, all the names of, of God, of Jesus, and at the center of it, do you see the phrase? Blessed hope. That is where we place our hope in today. But let me continue. Look at verse number four. Okay, under the point, where do we find this hope? I, I want to describe something about this hope. It says that this is a hope to an inheritance. Because what are we actually hoping in? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, in, the, in these verses we just read, we see Peter describe the type of hope that we have. Okay, look at verse 5. There, there's three phrases he uses. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All three words in the Greek start with the same prefix. It's the prefix A. When you add A to any word, it is the negation of that word. Okay, for example, theist, someone who believes in God, you add A, what word do we get? Atheist, they don't believe in God. I love how Peter describes our inheritance not as what we have, but as what we don't have. This is an inheritance that will not be, looking again in verse 5, verse 4, not perish, not defile, not fade. That is how we describe our hope. Unlike the hope placed on circumstances that will change with the changing of circumstances, our hope in this inheritance, and again, the word inheritance, do, do we earn an inheritance? How does someone get it? They inherit it. You get it because you are a child of whoever you're inheriting. We, being born again into the family of God, now inherit something that is imperishable. It, it's not going to perish. That is undefiled. It won't defile. That will not fade away. I think all those three phrases, I, I love how he uses a, a Greek word to describe it because the opposite are all true of our world today. Circumstances fade. Circumstances perish. Things will always let you down. Always. But we have something that never will. And uh, last, last thing before we go to our final point, look at verse 5. Who by the power of God, God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, this living hope that, one, is gr given to us because of the gospel— Two, is backed up by the resurrection. Three, is not perishing, is not fading away. That's not defiling. The thing that is sustaining the hope, and this is the best part, it's not on you. You're not the one guarding this hope. 
God says it's by his power. He's guaranteeing this hope. Our living hope is not based on something that could change because it's based on God. It's him guarding it. It's him protecting it. It's him making sure that he will make good on his promise for us. That when, when I die, my, my complete confidence is I will spend eternity in heaven with my Savior, with my God. What is that backed by? It is a knowledge that there's, it is not me that is ensuring that promise, but it's God. He's the one guarding it. He's the one protecting it. It is a guaranteed hope. Okay, I'm going to tell you something about myself that I waited until now to say, because if I said it earlier, you would have kicked me out of the church. And now that I'm halfway through the message, it's too late to do it. You might as well finish the message, okay? I am a big basketball fan. Okay, on top of uh, teaching world history, I'm also the, the varsity girls coach for basketball at Berean. Okay, big basketball fan. And the thing that got me into basketball was watching my current favorite team, the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm a, okay, I'll leave. I know. <laughs> Okay, I'm a, I'm a huge Lakers fan. I, that's, that's what got me into basketball. I love the Lakers. Okay, if, you're, if, you watch, if you love basketball, you probably watched your preseason yesterday, and the Warriors did beat the Lakers, okay? So the Lakers did something unprecedented, something amazing, something the Warriors haven't done, something that 29 other teams have never done and will never do because it was one of its kind. And what did they do? A few years ago in 2020, they won a championship in the bubble. The bubble. Okay, some people will say like, oh, was that a real championship? Yes, it was because the Lakers won it. Okay, why, why, okay, why a bubble? Well, remember, 2019, COVID happened. So in 2020, right, the 2020 or 2021, it was during that time, they had this, this, this plan, we're going to postpone the NBA, and it was months before they started playing, and when they finally started playing, they moved to, to Orlando, Florida, in Disney World, and they called it the bubble. Okay, the bubble, because it was a confined space where people couldn't go in and out to keep them from getting sick. Okay, there in the bubble, they, they resumed the playoffs, and the Lakers ended up winning. Okay, something that no other team could say, because it's one of its kind. But imagine how difficult that must have been. Okay, I know, like I said, some people discredit it, but it, some, some NBA players have said that that was more difficult than regular playoffs. Why? Because you have to live away from your family. You have to be confined to such a weird environment. But why did all these teams still sign up to do it? Why go to a place in the middle of the pandemic to, to still play basketball? Why? Because there was, listen church, a possibility that they could win a championship. A possibility. Which if, for, for most teams, except for the one who won, that possibility was not realized. They went to the bubble, they lost, and then they went home. But why did they still go? For the possibility. I'm grateful today that our hope is not on some possibility. It's not on maybe it's going to work out at the end. I'm trusting in God because maybe there, there's the highest chance, highest likelihood is going to work out if I trust in God. No, God is saying in verse 5 that our hope is guarded by him. Not a possibility in a hope. It is a guarantee. Okay, a living hope. Lastly, number three, 
Hey, question one, why do we need it? Why? Because we go through suffering. Question two, where do we find it? Is given to us because of the gospel, through Jesus Christ. But lastly, question three, how does living hope help us today? Okay, because up until this point, you might have agreed with point one and two, but still are unable to, to see how this changes things. And let me say with question three, how does it help us today? This practical piece of the message is important because if I stop there, it almost, and we have to be careful because it almost becomes insensitive when we help other people and we just say, well, why don't you just hope in God? Why don't, you have a living hope, believer. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be struggling the way you're struggling. Trust in God more. Just hope in him more. And now, now what do we do? We, we place our ability to hope on ourselves rather than the hope itself. Okay, so I, I really want us to pay attention to this last piece because in number three, I'm going to describe how does living hope change things. If, and it should. Why? Because look, look, church, if you are a believer and you have a living hope, what that assumes is everyone who is not a believer does not have a living hope. So if we have living hope and they don't have living hope, our, the way we perceive life should not be the same. There should be a difference. There should be a, a different way in how we conduct and how we live because we have a living hope. Okay, what is that different way? Let's, let's look at the passage again. Okay, now we're going to work our way to verse 9. So starting in verse 7. Okay, actually, sorry, verse 6. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And we're going to go verse by verse until verse 9. Various trials. Notice that. Okay, I'm going to read one more time. In this you, what is the word? Rejoice, or greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The word grieve there in, in Greek is lupeo, and it describes a heavy grieving. Okay, the, the word lupeo is the same word used by, by it, it, to describe Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the weight of the cross was weighing heavy on him, and he sweated blood, right? That's the same grief. It is, this isn't some light boo-boo. This is something heavy. But notice the paradox there. We, present tense, rejoice while at the same time, present tense, suffer. We have joy while we grieve. We have hope while we suffer. And that is the beautiful picture of what the gospel and living hope provides us is church. Your suffering does not mean you don't have hope. In this paradigm of living hope, only in the paradigm of living hope, only through a gospel lens can both suffering and joy coexist. Listen to what I just said. Only because of the gospel and the living hope it provides us, no other paradigm will this work. In other paradigms, it's a paradox. But in the gospel, suffering and joy could coexist. Why? The next two verses are going to give us our reason. Look at verse number seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not know, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, two, two reasons from those verses. How does in, in our living hope, suffering and joy, grieving and joy, how do they both work together? Well, in verse number seven, the first one is because our suffering refines us. Because our suffering, it changes us. Although the circumstances didn't change, do you realize something changes about you? As we cling to this living hope, as we go through the trials and the difficulties, you might never see a change in what you're going through, but there's a change in what's happening in you. We're being refined, we're being changed. And look at verse number eight. Here's a second point. Okay, though you have not seen him, that's talking about Jesus Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, that's present tense. That's describing something that's true about them. He's saying that even though you don't see Jesus, what are these believers who are scattered throughout all these countries filled with? They are filled with joy. In the King James, it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's not a fake smile joy. That's a, a bubbling joy. How is that possible? Well, it's through what he just described, this ability to believe in him even though we don't see him. Do you know what suffering does to us that, that you could find great joy in? All of your suffering, church, is our opportunity to depend more closely on Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity for, like in verse 7, our faith to be tested, to see the genuineness of it. That's why suffering and joy could coexist, because when suffering happens and our faith is tested, our faith refines. And in that refining, we place our faith in Jesus. And in doing so, we trust in him more and we depend on him more. And this living hope that we have, we're now relying on, we're depending on. And that does not happen without the suffering. The suffering fo forces us to focus on him. It's like a little kid who falls down and scrapes his knee or her knee, and they're all wailing and bawling, and, and they think they're about to die until you as a parent takes the child by the chin or by, by the arms and raises them and says, look at me. It's okay. I'm thankful for the suffering that forces me to look at him, forces me to remember that it's okay. Why? Because my hope is not in this, but it's on him. And sometimes I don't see that until I suffer. Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages. In other words, I've learned to be thankful, to be joyful in the suffering that forces me to look at him, rely on him. Let me, let me read to you this verse from 2 Corinthians. Okay, this is Apostle Paul speaking. He said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So there was something that Paul was asking Jesus to remove, depart, take it away from me. Maybe you've, you've had something like that. God, take this away from me. It's causing me to suffer, to, to have pain, it's hurting me. Take it away. Paul had this experience. Notice how he dealt with the experience. In verse 9, and he said to me, he, so what we're about to hear is Jesus speaking to Paul. Jesus tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And we know this verse, but I, I want to nuance it a little bit because the next word is therefore. So what, what we're about to hear Paul say is true because of what Jesus just told him. So G, G, Paul says, Jesus, take this away from me. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here's Paul's response. Okay. Because of what you said, Jesus, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus says, my grace is enough for you, church. In, in your weakness, you, you discover new strength, strength in him. And like Paul, we could say, okay, based on that fact, therefore, I will boast in my infirmities. I will take joy in the suffering, knowing what suffering does for me. It refines me and it forces me to focus on him. Church, we all have a living hope. It's if you're a believer, you have it. The question is today, are we living according to the reality that that living hope provides? The living hope isn't some add-on you have to order. It's not something where, do you guys play video games? Do you? Okay, maybe not. I, I just thought in video games, you order the game, and then to make more money, you add an add-on, a DLC, you have to pay some more. And it's like something you add on later, okay? Your living hope isn't the DLC of your salvation. It's not some bonus add-on you have to pay extra to get. It's in the package. We have it. The question today is, are we living in the reality that our living hope provides for us? So let me end with this illustration. Okay, in Greek mythology, it was believed that between the canal, the straits that separated the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean, there in the canal that separated, again, those two bodies of water, Hercules erected two pillars. And on those two pillars was written the phrase, nay plus ultra, meaning no more beyond. It was a warning for any traveler who was about to cross in the Mediterranean through the, the canal, through the strait, into the Atlantic Ocean. Because what did they believe about the world at that time? It was flat. There's no more beyond. You go at your peril. If you go past this canal, you're going to fall off the edge of the, of the cliff and you're going to die. What we know from our, from our little nursery rhyme or history rhyme in 1492... Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And what did he discover? That if I kept going, I'm not going to fall. Okay, that there's actually more beyond. So through that discovery that was accredited to Columbus in Spain, they erected a monument. And in this monument, on this monument, was a lion. That lion representing Christopher Columbus the paw of the lion on the phrase nay plus ultra is slashing, hitting the phrase nay as a symbol of Christopher Columbus's discovery, changing the phrase nay plus ultra to plus ultra. It's not no more beyond, there is a beyond. There's something that is beyond the water. It, it keeps going. And I think what a beautiful picture of our living hope. 
Our lion, right next to the word hope, lion out of the tribe of Judah, when he died, it seemed all hope was lost. When he was buried, it seemed everything was over. But three days later, he rose again. And because of his resurrection, we have a living hope that takes the phrase, no more beyond, and we know there is a beyond. We know that this life isn't all that there is. Because of what Jesus has done, we know that after this life is over, there is a beyond this world and our circumstances and our difficulties and our troubles, the things that cause us to suffer aren't all that there is. Here at church, whatever you're going through is not all that there is because of our living hope, we know, plus ultra. There is more beyond. So here, here's the invitation as I pray. And when the music team comes up, what are you currently struggling through? Okay, maybe two groups of people here. The non-believer, you're a non-believer. Place your faith in Jesus. Don't try to do this life on your own. There's no amount of good works that will ever earn you a standing, a relationship before you and God. It's already been done for you. Rest in the gospel and what Jesus offers to you. But if you have accepted that, that means you're a believer. That means you're born again. And what that comes with is a living hope. Okay, how, how sad would it be to go through life suffering, begging God for something he's already given to you? Rather, why don't we ask God this? God, we already have this living hope. Help us to live in the reality and the riches that this living hope can do for us the new paradigm that it could give to us, how it shapes the way we view suffering, how we now know suffering and joy can coexist. God, help me to live in the reality of the living hope that you have given to me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this message. Lord, we have a hope, and it's not because of what we've done, but it's because of what you've given. Thank you, Father, that it seems, seems like at every aspect or avenue, an area of our life, Lord, it, it just keeps circling back to the gospel. It keeps circling back to something you've already done for us. And Lord, when we think of how are we going to navigate life, when we ask God, how long until my loved one gets better? Lord, how long until my circumstances change? Thank you, Father, that we see from your word that it's not a matter of things changing, but it's a matter of us just trusting in you, trusting that you have things under control, trusting that we have an inheritance that doesn't change. And God, we didn't read verse 9, but thank you, Lord, that one day what we hope in, according to verse 9, will no longer be a hope, but it'll be an actual vis visible reality, that everything that we are hoping in you for, God, we know one day will come to pass. Okay, if not in this life, Lord, we know in, in the next life, Lord, when we see, see ourselves glorified and we experience glorification and we're now part of eternity, God, thank you, Lord, that one day, even if not in this life, we have the confidence that everything would be made right. Lord, thank you, Father, for this living hope. I ask God that you help us. Lord, really help us because we can't do it without your help. Help us to live in the reality of the hope that you have given to us. Lord, I pray, God, that you speak now as the music plays. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.